0: Welcome back, folks, to the Get a Grip on Lighting podcast. On today's show, we have Jennifer Jakes, media past president of the IES and new IES director of member services. Oh, yeah, it's going to be fun. Valentine's Day special for all you out there. But before we go there, Greg, we got to go back to the original. Oh, yeah, energy focus. You got to go to E N E R G Y F O C U S -S 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 dot com, Greg, Eric
1: that's right last month we introduced their new uv products that are coming out or that are out now best names in the business by the way and this one we're going to dive into specifically is one you've mentioned a few times on the last few shows actually about when we talk about uv is having a Mm troffer that has continuous air circulation that's what this does it's the above ABUV is how it's spelled and it's got 24 7 air circulation going on in the troffer but it's also practical because the troffer has lighting in it and it has Mm -hmm. Energy Focus Lighting, where you can get the color-tunable, dimmable LED tubes right into it. So, replaceable components, air-circulating UV with the above fixture. Come on.
0: So original, so original, so original. Always at the top, energyfocus.com, dot com. You know, it's uh, active and passive air disinfection with a little hygiene theater to tell everybody that that fixture is doing that is the answer from the lighting industry to all this stuff out there that we can give as a gift but you know we can talk about that on another show because right now we have jennifer standing by welcome back jennifer thank you greg say hello to greg garrick hi greg
1: hello (laughs) thanks for coming on the show
0: So listeners, you're listening to this right now. We had a little bit of audio trouble at the beginning of the show. So we're kind of re-recording, so you got to stick with us here. It's going to be a little bit awkward, but we want Jennifer, we want the listeners to know a little bit about Jennifer's career. Tell us about the company you started 20 years ago, Jennifer.
2: So the company I started year, 20 years ago um, is called Lighting Application Sciences, and we are a um, limited-service design company. And so what we do is we provide technical and calculation support um, to manufacturers, engineers, architects, really whoever needs the help um, to confirm their design intent or to provide design assistance. We are not a full service design company. We don't do audits. We don't do installation. We don't do those sorts of things. We, We pretty much sit behind a computer all day. Um, but we are able to assist our clients in that way. Um, so it's it's kind of niche. Um, and uh, I almost consider it like a video game. If if I can understand the lighting software and do my best with the lighting software, it's like I've leveled up on a video game. Um, you never wanna play a video game like Mario Kart with me because I'll be really, really bad at it, but I love doing lighting calculations. Um, and. So that's, that was the founding of the company and that's the company that, I, that I've been a part of for the last 20 years.
0: And so that company's software-based, so how much change have you seen in the last um, 20 years in terms of the technical tools available to do that job?
2: So the tools available have expanded a lot. When I first started using the lighting software and uh, even before I launched the company, it was DOS-based. And so we're talking way back when. So in 2000, Pretty much all of the software was, you know, uh, compatible with Apple's or Windows OS. Um, and as the software evolved, um, it became more intuitive and easier to use. When I first launched the company, things were, you had to understand the software and it was a little bit more complex to work with. And you also had the wisdom and the knowledge that coupled with that to make a complete package of, of what you did as your, as your job or as your career. And as the software improved, streamlined, Went to reach a broader audience. Um, more and more people began to use the software um, without maybe the full knowledge of, of the capabilities the software had and the implications of using the software well. And so I think that part of the reason that the company I launched was successful is because we are able to bring that wisdom and knowledge that we've gained with us um because you really have to have both of them you you can know how to do a software program and use the software program but you may not have good design practice or good design intent or good design habits and so those really have to work hand in hand and i think that as software becomes more available and more folks are using them they still have to make sure they get both that wisdom and the knowledge so they know the software well and they use their knowledge to create a reasonable positive output that meets the client's needs, as well as the other needs like codes and all of that sort of stuff.
0: What what kind of people would be your customers?
2: Um, so our customers kind of runs the gamut, honestly. We work with architects and engineers. Um, we work with manufacturers. Uh, we work with sales agencies and usually in the sales agency side, any sales agency, we work with the outside spec sales folks. Um, and for the manufacturers, we provide a kind of, we provide the calculation side, but we also provide if they're working on product development and they want to do comparison of their test beta product to something else, or if they need help with technical jargon for their pet sheets, that's kind of an off the wall thing that we do. Um, But we will pretty much assist everyone who needs assistance um, as frequently or as infrequently as they need. Um, And my 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 idea, I guess if you were to say I had a business plan, which by the way, I did not when I launched the company in 2000, um, is that we would be there when folks needed us to be there. And sometimes that's every single day. And sometimes that's only once a week. And sometimes we only hear from them once a month. And so that variability suits the client. And that's what we're here to do is to serve the client.
0: How much of those skills can one learn in school and then how much on the job training is really required to become proficient at what you guys do
2: as a company. So, um, I think there are resources, resources out there where you can definitely learn programs. Everyone has access to, you know, the YouTubes or the recorded trainings on sketchup or any program that you do. Um, so I think those definitely have to be out there and those have to be used. You know, um, I think that speeds up your learning curve on understanding and being efficient with the software. But I think that the education side of it also has to include the lighting knowledge. And that's that's the design practice, that's the understanding of your sources, that's the understanding of how light and shadow play together. That's the understanding of um, the practical components of When you, how do you read a plan for a site? You know, what does a fire hydrant look like? Should I not put a pole next to the dumpster because the dump trucks or garbage trucks wanna back out and hit the pole and knock it over? Very practical aspects. And some of those you only get with that experience and that kind of OJT or um, training experience that arises through the company that you've, you've partnered with when you're young in your career.
0: So you are saying earlier in the, in the conversation, we talked a little bit about apprenticeships. And I've often felt that the lighting industry in all its different forms, from Nalmco to Nail to, to lighting designers, there seems to be a more emphasis on education and not enough on apprenticeships. Is that something that, especially when you take a look at the kind of company that you're running where the skills are so unique, um, I've never discovered a company that uh, did that kind of thing, Greg, you know, you know what I'm saying?
1: I agree. Yeah, I don't think we have.
0: So how do you feel about if this industry were to embrace the apprenticeship model, not getting rid of the education, but maybe add the apprenticeship model to the mix?
2: That's a really good question. I have to say that for me, when I launched the company in 2000, I created the model for me out of necessity um, because I knew I needed help to launch this successfully, and I couldn't wear every hat all the time. So um, I've been reading this book called Stretch by Steve Schoenenheim, and essentially it says that when you lack resources, you use the resources you have to the best of their ability, and you think kind of beyond what you normally would for those resources. And so I used my local university, and I began having conversations with students who wanted to learn and were looking for a career path and were open to entering an industry that they honestly had never heard of. Um, and so that's, I grew all of my staff that way. And I think the industry, not just the lighting industry, but a lot of industries could um, be well served by that program. Um, it's, it was informal for me. It wasn't a formalized program. It was just something that evolved over time. Um, but I think that a lot of organizations and industries can broaden the pipeline to bring in new interest if they have some sort of an externship offering or an apprenticeship offering, or internship possibilities.
0: You know, it's interesting, I'll give you a little anecdote that might that might be uh, usefully applied. Yeah, Ontario, there was, um, Ontario is a very attractive place for inter- immigrants to come in, in Canada. So if somebody immigrates to Canada, they generally want to come to either Vancouver or Toronto, and if they're a French-speaking person, maybe Montreal. And that's kind of the destinations, right? And so, uh, what happened was there was a lot of um, new Canadians uh, that uh, had a lot of skills that Canada needed, but they were you know driving taxis or they were working in warehouses as opposed to uh, working in engineering and or you know and they they had the language and so they needed maybe a little bit of language skills and then they needed to cross their skills from their country of origin through a program and then into become Canadian or Ontario based qualifications and so there was this program that. They ran and they targeted um, the new, new Canadians. And there was a little bit of, you know, uh, uproar about why resources were being spent here instead of there. But I thought it was a great program, and I participated in it. And what we did was we brought um, foreign-trained electricians on as third-year apprentices in our company. Okay? And if their skills did not prove to be of a third-year apprentice, they were demoted or they were – some of them were, were fast-tracked through – and pass the tests and this allowed them to cross their foreign qualifications into uh, Ontario qualifications and I did that with 15 different people from all around the world um, uh, and they, five of them now own their own companies and are customers of mine so it was a wonderful program for Ontario and it was in that vein of get these people working in the fields that they're trained in from their country so that they can you know succeed as opposed to driving an Uber or it's like, it's kind of a like, I'm not that driving an Uber is a bad job and it's, that's, you know, that's honorable work. But you know, for someone that's an engineer or an electrician or whatever, coming from a foreign country to Canada, say South Africa, for example, that's very frustrating for them to be not able to pursue their career. And so I think the lighting industry does a very poor job and Canada as well, the, this program was great, but they canceled it. It was such a wonderful program, but it got canceled, it got cut. Um and uh... but it was a wonderful program uh... the uh... in the lighting industry does a bad job at advertising the, the the ton of wonderful careers that there is in lighting for all manner of people like we're not good at that and how how could we get better at telling people there's lots of lots of different careers in lighting that are fun and exciting and and there's different innovative companies and there's lots of innovation in lighting but we do a bad job telling that story jennifer why is that
2: I think for a lot of industries, and I'm not just speaking of a lighting industry, but for a lot of industries, there's a mentality as time evolved, we specialized in things. We became specialists as doctors. We became specialists as lighting professionals. We became specialists at these things. And that makes us look internally much more frequently than externally. And I think as an industry, if we want to grow, we have to recognize that our view needs to be external and our view needs to be not just speaking to those people who already know about the industry or have an interest in the industry, but those people who've never heard of the industry. And that's, in my opinion, is really how we begin to broaden the opportunities and broaden that pipeline to bring those people in. You know, talking about your Canadian program, it's a kind of a weird source of pride for me that of all of the people that I brought into my company over the years, 80% of them are still in the lighting industry in some capacity and but they found their own ways i was like a stepping stone my company was a stepping stone and that's great my intention is to raise them up to give them that opportunity to give them those skills and then let them find their own path and i think the industry and a lot of industries need to have a similar perspective in order to grow and support globally the opportunities that we have
0: so I, I I really like what you said there. I would preface it for one thing for the younger people listening to this. There's a stepping stone which you want to use, you know, in your career, and nobody begrudges that, but you wanna be careful not to be a floater. You don't wanna be someone that's making lots of lateral moves in early in your career as well. Like you, you don't wanna be like on your LinkedIn over five years, have six different lighting companies. Like that I see a lot of that out there and I I, you know if somebody's coming up in the business right now I would say yes there's nothing wrong with you know starting at one place and then moving to another one but you know don't make it a yearly thing (laughs) make it you know make it you know put your time in somewhere learn what needs to be learned honor that 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 entrepreneur or that company that gave you that job and contribute as best you can And when you've you sort of completed that three to five year cycle, then you relook and say, do I belong in this company? Is there something else I need to go? But there's a risk of being a floater a little bit with that. And I've seen that in in Toronto, that there's a lot of people that have jumped from company to company. And it doesn't look good to entrepreneurs when you have so many people, so many different companies on your resume.
2: I will say, though, that I think organizations like the Eliminating Engineering Society and, and IEC and IALD and all of these other organizations um, and the industry, it's interesting because we as a society expect our youth to know what they want to do when they're seven. You know, they, we, we put these things on them, right? So, oh, you're going to be a professional soccer player or whatever that is. And, and as they learn about themselves and evolve, they may discover that path that they put in that report when they were in junior high school isn't valid for them anymore. So while I think there's a, a respect or a loyalty that maybe those young people um, need to give to those folks who gave them that opportunity to learn, I also think there's value in them having a lot of different experiences to, if nothing else, to learn what they don't like. Let them learn what they don't like and learn what they do like and follow that path but that's their decision. And so I think that's one really great thing about apprenticeships, externships especially, and internships because they can essentially dabble a short term in a lot of different things before they commit as an adult to what that career path is gonna be. So the, the internship
0: thing is interesting. And the, like the, um, what do you call it when a school sends a, someone to, like a, a university or college student or a high school student to go work. I think it's very important that those people get paid as well. And the, one of the things I <laughs> like about the apprenticeship model is that you're being paid. And so when you're receiving that, there has to be a quid pro quo. People take it more seriously or something when you're getting paid. Um, but I would also throw this in. There's a lot of talk about find your pa- like passion. And I think passion can be a little bit misleading um, for some young people. I mean, Greg still thinks he's going to, you know, play quarterback for the Minnesota Vikings. I've been telling him for years. No, Greg.
1: <laughs> I'm trying. I'm trying. <laughs> that it's, it's
0: probably not going to happen, right? So, uh, but, you know, you, you, you can also, you can say I'm passionate about this, but then you can also find your passion in your work and doing a good job, whatever it is. And, it turns out that I'm I'm passionate about selling light bulbs. Uh who knew, right? That that would happen. And so I think it's um I think for the young or the younger people listening to this there's there's some good messages there. Greg, you want to move it over to the IES though.
1: Soon, but something came up as we were talking there. Jennifer, how did you get started? Did you get in uh did you have a mentor? Did you have an mm-hmm. internship type? How did you get it going?
2: So Uh, That's an interesting question. So I started, I went to school, my path was um, architecture. Um, And I entered my career as a residential, working for a residential GC home builder. Um, And did that for several years. Um, Got laid off a few times with the economy downturn, Um, decided I needed a more stable job as a young person. and. So I applied for a lighting manufacturer that was local to our area. And I think the only way I got in was because I knew a software program, oddly enough, that they were just transitioning to. My manager had it as a requirement for all of her staff that we would join the IES. And she was my de facto mentor. I could call her at any time, ask her any question, whether it was lighting or not, Um, And she really took us all under her wing. And she had one of the youngest departments in the company at the time, as far as our average ages. Um, But she really valued the education and gaining that knowledge and that wisdom. And so really, I tried to emulate that in the model that I created when I founded my company.
1: Very good. And this might be a question for both of you and I can probably chime in too, but how long do you guys think it really takes to be out of your internship, to be good at, proficient at what you do. I know there's different levels of that, but how long does it take? Everything's different, I know that, but in general.
2: So I guess I'll answer first, (laughs) okay. (laughs) Um, For me, I was told that I didn't leave my office at the company that I was hired at for the first two years. And I think that was because I was trying to absorb everything I could and I was just in my own bubble. Um, for, my, for the folks that I've hired at, uh, hired at my company as interns and then who went on to work for me, um, two to three years is a window where I feel they're competent and they feel they're competent to have and develop that closer relationship with their clients without me being kind of in the background ready to jump in should they have a problem. Um, but to your point, if I'm working in a photometric testing laboratory or if I'm a salesperson or if I'm a product design engineer or a product design developer, those timeframes are completely different. So I don't think there's a right answer.
0: So for me, uh, if you're looking at a um, like someone that works here, I think it takes two to three years. So what we, we the way I pay people is what we pay them a salary. And then we show them how much they cost the company and how much revenue, if they're a project manager, how much revenue they've generated. And then we give them a piece of the revenue, the gross profit above what their costs are, their vehicle, their phone, their salary, and so on. And so it usually takes about a year before, if we joke, we call them double zeros. Like if the guy knows nothing about lighting, nothing about product management, or nothing about sales... It's about three years. So if they're completely, I call that, we call it, we joke about the you're double, you're double zero. You know nothing about nothing. You're right out of college. You need to learn sales. You need to learn project management and you need to learn about lighting. So a person like that's going to take two to three years before, a year before they start to break even with you. And then two years before they start to make any money. And then three years before they're really valuable to the company. So that's about the, the process it takes. But after that third year, there's like a tilt in the arc where they start to get better and better and better and better and better. And so that there's a two to three year period. Um, but, you know, when you think about it to somebody coming out of college, that may seem like a long time, but it's actually not that long. Right. So, you know, if you're if you're for me, it's like two to three years now, if you're doing it, if you're if you're like you said, some things are a lot more complicated and take more time to learn. But in terms of a project management and lighting sales and that sort of thing, it's about two to three years. Greg.
1: Yeah. And I just look at my own example. Um, it took me probably five years, really, to get rolling. I, you know, I came into a company that was focused all on distribution, and then, then I started figuring out what projects were and how to retrofit things and doing all that. And I see this certificate on my wall. I joined the IES in February of 2010. So I started in lighting in June of 2005. So there's a good five years there where I didn't figure anything out, and it's surprising that right when I joined the IES is when I started figuring things out. You know, I don't know if it worked out that way, but that, that's that's about what it felt like to me is, you know, that five year time, but regardless, everyone learns a little different and and every situation is different, but it takes time. That's the point of all this. So shifting over to IES, your new role, what are the challenges? What are you excited about? What do you got coming up?
2: So for me personally, I don't have any educational nonprofit experience, right? So entering a nonprofit organization for me was, um, Intimidating, considering that as an opportunity was intimidating Um, because I don't I didn't go to school to be a nonprofit person. Right. Um, But the unique value that I bring to this role is that I have served as a volunteer within the IS. And I think and somebody will correct me when they listen to this, I think in almost every potential volunteer capacity that they offer. So I became a member of IES in 1995, and I became active in 2000, oddly enough, when I launched my own business. So I have followed a trajectory of leadership roles within IES, so I know the organization intimately. Um, and you, be, you, you know its gaps, you know its strengths, you know its weaknesses, you know the lines of communication, you know the workflow, you know all of these things. Um, and. I think that puts me in a spot where my learning curve for this role will be shorter than some because I can hit the ground running to throw out a colloquialism, right? Hit the ground running as far as the organizational structure and hierarchy and its history. And then I have identified for myself that I need to grow in nonprofit best practice. And so that's my gap. And that's what I'll I'll stretch to find a mentor and seek that knowledge on that topic. Um, So I think that's what I bring to the role is a a prompt understanding of the systems and processes in place um, with a need to expand my knowledge of nonprofit best practice.
1: And I don't know if this is, I think it's public knowledge and maybe you don't know the number offhand, but how many members are there of the IES?
2: We have approximately Eight thousand members, um, and those members are a mix. We have sustaining members, we have our individual members, we have emerging professionals, which is a form of an individual member. We have our associate members, we have fellows, we have uh, emeritus, and we have retired. So under the individual umbrella, we have a lot of like kind of subcategories, but um, we have approximately eight thousand members.
1: Is that including company memberships? I know that's getting into semantics, but I'm curious. Like, if you you have uh, take a big, you know, Signify, they have thousands of employees. Signify is a member, are they?
2: That's a really great question. And so, we don't offer what what you term a corporate membership. We offer a sustaining membership. And so, a sustaining membership is constructed for um, organizations or businesses or an individuals they so desire. And and we. Um, probably eight months ago to a year, launched a new sustaining membership model with additional benefits, additional visibility, um, additional uh, things that we've never presented to our sustaining member model before. And that's really enhanced what our sustaining members get. But to your point, companies can join us as different levels of sustaining member, like they can be a champion, they can be a contributor, they can be a benefactor all of these, and there's a stepped list, uh, list of benefits for that. And within each of those, they get an opportunity to have so many individual members. And so they get really easily, they get a discount code as part of their sustaining member uh, membership um, item. Um, and they say, hey, Greg, here's your discount code. You can go sign up to be an individual member at whatever level you like for a discount because that's a benefit of your company's sustaining membership. And so that way we can grow both sustaining membership and the opportunity for individuals to reap the benefits that IES offers. And so that's our sustaining membership model that is specifically geared for companies and organizations.
1: Do you have any new plans you can share in terms of membership or is it just getting your feet wet and getting I, after it?
2: I have plans. I am a planner, so I definitely have plans. Um, So one of the things, some of my top priorities um, in this director role is that we are improving, simplifying and clarifying our membership renewal process, both what the people see on the front side when they go to renew, but also our kind of back of house process. Um, That's a really important um, aspect that I'm jumping right into and I've been working hard on it all this week. Um, We are also working to improve the engagement of our membership. You know, One of the things that I'll be doing next week, if there's any sustaining members um, listening, is I'm going to be reaching out to our sustaining members um, during the next several weeks and, and introducing myself, talking through benefits, really trying to create that connection with our sustaining members so that they know their benefits and they understand their benefits and they can access those benefits. Because there's no point in us talking about all these benefits if nobody uses them. Right? You, you do that to get the perks. So we want the sustaining members to get those perks. So working on renewals, um, using the benefits and making sure people understand the benefits. And one of the newest benefits that we've launched is the Lighting Library. And I know that the members and listeners have you know, seen the advertisements for it and the promotional efforts for it. But um, as an individual member and as a sustaining member, you have an opportunity to subscribe to the Lighting Library as one of those benefits. Um, for a sustaining member example, they can subscribe to the Lighting Library and get a certain number of simultaneous logins. So to your point, if I have offices around the world and I'm a champion sustaining member, I can get, I don't know what the number is, I don't have that memorized yet, but let's say I can get simultaneous logins. I can have 10 or 20 of my employees all over the world logged into the Lighting Library at the same time with access to, I believe it's 9,000 pages worth of standards and recommendations. Um, and as an individual member, um, you can access the full Lighting Library or portions of the Lighting Library for different rates. And right now, as a, uh, um, to gain attention and, and promote the Lighting Library, we're offering a 50% discount on that subscription to our individual members. So if you're interested, now is the time to do it. And and the Lighting Library is really also a stretch thing, kind of like that book that I referenced, because it was a conversation we started three years ago when I was serving on the board as to what can we do to improve accessibility, visibility, integration of that knowledge to a broader audience. And so we started that conversation three years ago of what that could be. And it evolved into what you see now, which is a digital online available 24 seven lighting library of all of our RPs, DGs, handbook, you name it. And it took many, many hours of staff and our technical committees. They have been working so hard for the last three years to launch this, but we're really, really proud. Um, but it, that's one of our stretch things. We thought outside the box and use the resources we had available to do this and take us to the next level.
1: Is the, the lighting handbook is part of that. Is it, um, the print version going away? This thing,
2: I actually almost put it on my desk this morning. So I could like hold it up for you guys, but it's like nine pounds. And I didn't really feel that strong this morning. So I didn't pick it up. Um, <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, so it includes the full handbook. Um, If you use recommended practices, which is the RP acronym, if you use design guides, if you use technical memorandums, um, all of this is available to you as um, packages or as part of the full subscription to the lighting library. For my calculation work that limited design service, we kind of live in the application side of documentation. And so, you know, if I were to purchase the lighting library now, that would be the section that I would be most interested because in, we literally access it every single day when we do our job. So uh, there's a huge sense of value and, and, and uh, pride, I think for the board, also for the staff and for all of those volunteers to, who worked on that when they launched the lighting library.
0: Hello, puppy. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> all right. uh, Greg, you still up?
1: Yeah, just uh, one other question. I know this is a weird one, but I've always been interested in the IES headquarters. Is it actually on Wall Street in New York?
2: It is on Wall Street in New York. It's so cool to be able to say that my office is 120 Wall Street on the 17th floor. I couldn't say that until this week. Um, But, yes, it is. It is a beautiful entryway. Very Art Deco over the doors. Um, Architecturally, I love that building.
0: You know what? Spaces matter. Um, I was going to ask you, like, so being a being member services—that's probably the most important job in the IES. Actually, like, you think about it, um, membership is what the IES is like that's what it's made up of it's made up of members and you're the director of member services and a lot of times you know you think about it it's like oh we have these things available they're on our website but I think we as associations like Nailed the association that Greg and I are part of we we need to as associations reach out to those members and let them know that this is what's available to you and how we communicate that and as varying membership types it sounds like you have a complicated job
2: I, I think I have a very complicated job, but, but I would counter you and say that I don't have the most important job. I think the amazing thing about IES is we are identified as a, an SDO, a Standards Development Organization. And so without that side of our organization, we wouldn't have all of the documentation and the RPs and DGs um, that are approved through an ANSI process that are recognized worldwide and referenced worldwide in different capacities. So I think there's really a partnership of the standards and and the research department and the membership. We, We are the, as member services, we are here to help our members feel loved, effective, productive, appreciated. The standards and research department is there to capture that technical knowledge and then share that technical knowledge back out so I think it really goes hand in hand. And honestly, without the other staff supporting us, we couldn't do either one of those effectively. So, you know, yes, I'm director of member services, but it has to be my whole team. Everyone comes along for the ride.
0: So when you talk about growing your membership or re- retaining membership, do you have a strategy towards do you have multiple strategies to grow the membership? Is there different facets to it? And are there any fiduciary responsibilities that you see as the membership director of the IES from the industry perspective? Like, do you see yourself as having a responsibility um, to, you know, to America and to like to, to share the, the value of IES membership with a larger non-member audience?
2: So there was two questions. So let me let me answer the first. one. (laughs) Um, So. And I'll probably answer them in reverse order, quite honestly. So, yes, I feel a sense of responsibility. Um, I think every industry is really good at talking to itself, like talking to the choir. Right. We are very good at that. Um, But I think if we want to um, walk the walk of the IES belief statements that the board put forth a couple of years ago that we have to start looking and speaking externally. I think if the society is able to present opportunities, and our educational platform is one of those those things, we, a non-member can join any webinar that they would like to join as an educational opportunity. When we did the the global three-day whirlwind tour of education webinars, right? Um, It was like 23 or 19 webinars in 36 hours or something like that. And we followed the time zones around the world, and we had presenters from around the world. Um, Non-members could participate in that. They could sign in and listen to a presentation from someone in India. It was, was very externally facing, and so we're really proud of those efforts. Can we do better? Of course we can. Every organization can do better to be facing externally. Um, so yes, we have a responsibility to do that. And as member Director of Member Services, that is, that is something that my eye is always on. Um, and to your other question, um, there are multiple strategies. The, the thing that, and I think each of you do within your job, you never do something only one way. You're always looking for ways to improve and different ways to get to an end result. And so conversations and building community and retaining members and growing members, every single one of those things has to have multiple paths to success. And if we don't look at multiple paths to success, we aren't going to succeed. Because a real practical example, some people don't like email. Some people don't like texts. Some people don't like phone calls. So how are you gonna capture all of those people in that community and have that connection with them? And so, yes, there are always multiple paths to everything that we do.
1: That reminds me, Mike, we do need to find that picture at some point we saw in China of the swimming pools this way and that way. You can go either way and get to the same, same yeah. result. <laughs> this way, but, that way. That's right. <laughs> the uh, next question, Light fare. is that really going down? What's the story? Where are we at? Maybe you don't know. It's really
2: it. going down. It's, it's going down, it's, it's happening. So um, it's really interesting because as serving on the IES board of directors, um, the president and the vice president serve on the Light for the Management Committee as part of the uh, three owners of Lightfare. So IS is an owner, IALD, the International Association of Light Designers and IMC, International Market Center. Um, So we all serve in that. So with all of the changes with the pandemic and every day was a different conversation, um, these three partners have been working exhaustively together to understand what we can do, what we can't do, what the possibilities are. And IMC has been interacting with the Javits Center where life care is gonna be held um, and they've developed the safer Floor, safer show protocols, IMC has. And then they develop those and they're updating those within the models that Javits has put forth as required by for the New York City where Javits is located. So I'm confident that that show is gonna happen and it is late October. And so I really think that the level of, oh my gosh, let's do this. We get to meet face to face. We get to have a trade show is going to be through the roof. Um, and I'm looking a lot I'm looking forward to it. Um, And I think that the protocols that have been put in place for safety will continue to evolve probably until the week before the show because all of the data changes every day.
1: Yeah, that's gonna be the interesting part is, are they gonna allow anybody who wants to go? Are they gonna cut it off? All, All unknown questions, I suppose, at this point. Time will tell. Anything else on the IES front that we need to know right now, 2021?
2: Um, so a couple of things that I'll throw out there that I'm also doing um with the help of our committees. Um, and so interesting, is has technical committees that work as part of the standards development organization. They work with the standards research department, but the member services department also has several committees that they work with, like the annual conference committee, um, the uh leadership. Committee, the Emerging Professionals Committee. So those are all under kind of the member services umbrella. So some of the things that we've been working on that that quite honestly kind of stopped for a bit when the pandemic um, occurred is that IES, and this goes back to our whole conversation of externships and apprentices and interns and all of that sort of stuff. um, IES is really dedicated to creating a year-long Emerging Professionals Program connected to a mentorship program Um, And so we're gonna be working with that with our volunteer technical committee or uh, EP committee to launch that. And then from that and maybe parallel or shortly afterwards, we're going to be working on developing a leadership development program that will be a year long in duration. And my hope is that leadership development program will not only work towards developing the participants within their IES career, but provide them skills and opportunity to gain skills and, and typical vernacular soft skills, right? To bring to their employer and company career. So so those are two things that, that we'll be working on the member department. Uh, we're very dedicated to doing that. But again, it is done in conjunction with our volunteers because we are also a volunteer organization. They are very critical to the work we do. I've
0: never seen volunteerism effective anywhere else, like really effective anywhere else other than the IES. I've never seen anything like it. Um, the committees, the techno when I found out that most of the people work, or all the people on those committees are all volunteers, it was mind-blowing to me, actually. Uh, that's really, I, I've never seen volunteerism work, and, and I, the only thing is there's an asterisk, and it says volunteerism works with the IES. Um, but I honestly have so many times I've seen failures in volunteerism, but you guys blow me away. Uh, Greg, uh, Jennifer, thank you for being a guest on the show. Can you stick around for a minute after we finish the, uh, sure. with our friends here? Greg, we got to go back to the original, brother. Energyfocus.com. That's dot com. The original, Greg, talk to me about them.
1: The above ABUV, throw that UV letter in there for UVC air disinfection and dimmable, tunable ceiling troffer. It's a cool looking fixture. You're probably seeing it on the screen right now. And the part I like the best, I know the air circulation is great. The UV lighting is great, but you can replace the lamps and it gives you the lighting you need. And with their end focus LED lamps that are color tunable and dimmable and replaceable. And replaceable. Key word there.
0: Oh yeah. You know, Energy Focus has so many positions that uh, that were the, they were the first on the green with. You know, we're committed to replaceable, uh, tunable, uh, non flicker. Now they're into the UV section, you know, and you know they do it right. So go to E N E R G Y F O C U S dot com, the originals, energy focus. Of course, they are proud members of the National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors. That's right, our association. You're talking membership. If you're a distributor, hey, you got to join NIL too. Uh, come on now. We got LS Evolve that'll teach you all about that UV stuff. That's right, 10-11 modules on, on UV. But folks, if you made it to us with the end, you know Greg and I, and I know I can speak for Jennifer as well, we're very grateful to you. Thank you for listening.